Welcome to another edition of Energy Matters in the Classroom with Robin Berlinski. And, you know, I love to say this with every episode. Welcome to your show. (laughs) But I also want to mention the, we call this a byline. What is Energy Matters in the Classroom with Robin Berlinski? It's the show that highlights and celebrates the kinetic and potential energy in classrooms across the globe and why that even matters. Now, you already told me that teachers understand kinetic and potential energy. I'm, I'm a novice. Okay, explain this to me. Let's start with a, a kind of a foundation and get me up to speed. Okay, sure. So full disclosure, we're going 30,000 feet up on this. I taught fifth grade. I taught force and motion to fifth graders. So any mechanical engineers that may be listening um, have grace. Yeah. So let's let's look at it this way. Think of a slinky. Did you have a slinky? I did. Several. Little? Okay. Did you ever put it at the top of the stairs? Of course. Push that it was a bit? From the TV commercial, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes. So when your slinky is sitting at the top of the stairs, it has potential energy. So it's not moving. Its energy is is sitting there. Once you push it, as it's moving down the stairs, it's showing it's kinetic energy. It's the movement. So that's really the simple way to define kinetic and potential energy when you're thinking in terms of science and physics. Okay. Well, I remember that from physics, which was not one of my best subjects, I must say. But now let's talk about, again, for us lay people out there. So kinetic is what a student can do versus what a student has the potential to do. Is that a, did I get that right? That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Well, correct me. Tell me if I'm wrong. No, no. (laughs) Uh, You know, your students, think of the first day of school. You've got 20, 25 plus students coming in, looking at the teacher, ready for what's ahead for the next 180 days. There's a lot of potential energy there. And as soon as the students start engaging in the learning and performing, in whatever way that is, whether through tests or projects, you know, they're performing in in their kinetic zone once they start doing those things. But really the first day of school is when you're full of potential energy for those kids. So how does a teacher gauge any of this? I mean, as you say, you're standing there in front of a classroom of, you know, 25 or 30 kids, and they're all hopefully looking at you with great respect and ready for the, the new challenges ahead of them. But you have now 25 or 30 distinct personalities, distinct behavioral styles. You know, they don't all act in sync, obviously. Boy, is that a challenge, at least from where I'm standing it is. It is a challenge, and that's why I love celebrating and recognizing teachers for all the hard work they do. Um, I mean, you have 20, again, 25-plus little customers every day that come in with all kinds of different things and so you really have to channel everyone's energy into this one dynamic lesson about whatever it is that you're teaching. So um, I, I love that you asked that question because there's something that's really important to talk about here for a minute, and that is the, con- the, the definition of the conservation of energy, which means that something is going to stay where it is until it's pushed. You know, it's going to not move until you you do something like the slinky until you push it. It's, it's not going to move. Right. And that's what teachers do for kids. They'll be in that classroom and they'll do all kinds of great things if left alone. You know, they'll go to social media and they'll experiment with different things. 
But until a teacher can take what he or she knows and the strategies he or she learned, whether in college or through conferences, it's really going to sit there for a while until the teacher pushes it. But you are right that there are so many different personalities and different backgrounds that come to each classroom. In fact, that come to each zip code in each district around the country. So every school is so different and so unique. It is a challenge. But what were some of the techniques that you used? I mean, is it possible that just like asking the question, what's your name? Or I remember we had to stand up, which I hated. What's your name? And they always made fun of my name because my legal name. And then what did you do over your summer vacation? And of course, that was part of that public speaking we're talking about at some point and the nervousness. But can a teacher gauge something from just how you answer those questions? Are you trained with that ability or is that something that's innate within you? Yeah. So do you remember in school when you had to read out loud when you would get called on? Sure. Yeah. So we call it popcorn reading. And a lot of teachers are doing away with that because first of all, if you know you're the third one, what are you doing while one and two are reading, right? You're reading the pair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so that that's really, you know, you have to think about what you're intending for the kids to do and what they're actually doing. And that that nervous energy, knowing they have to, as your, as your example, stand up and you know, say what they did over the summer, it's going to change the outcome based on how they feel about it. So I like to think of it, do, did you have like reading groups in school, like the red group, you know, the blue group, the green group, or the, the squirrels and the chipmunks? And the, Did you have reading groups? I, I think so. I mean, maybe we're talking about what, fourth, fifth grade, something like right. that. So kids would be in groups depending on their developmental level. So if you're reading at a fifth grade level and you're in third grade, you're going to be reading different books independently than one of your peers who might be reading at a second grade level. Well, a teacher shouldn't teach to one of those levels. There's a way to make sure all students are engaged at whatever level they come to you at and that they're challenged and being pushed to the next level. And I will tell you that is probably the number one challenge I see in my students at the College of Charleston as they're preparing to be teachers is knowing how to differentiate the learning so they capture all the kids and are able to push them forward. Those reading groups are, are you know, they're a blessing and a curse. I don't know if, if you did this, but you know, kids know who's in which group. Kids can be brutal. If they know you're in the low group, you know, they, they're calling you names behind your back. It's sad, but it's reality. So another challenge for teachers is how can you differentiate your learning by not like calling it out? I don't need to know that I'm the chipmunk group if I'm a slow reader because it gets around pretty quickly. The chipmunks don't know how to read. <laughs> so you want to break it up a little bit and, you know, base some of your groups on interests like these kids love sports and these kids over here like to read more so instead of always having it depend on your reading level have some of your grouping depend on student interest I this is all fine but you know what you're making me think about is one more challenge heaped on the shoulders of these teachers so you have let's say 25 or 30 fresh faces in the classroom it would be a fallacy to presume that they're all there at the same level so now you have to differentiate and, I guess, use different teaching styles to make sure that these kids don't fall behind and these kids don't get too far ahead, that somehow maybe your job is to have them all on an 
in even keel by time the semester is over. I mean, this is boggling my mind. As it should, um, and that's why teachers should make a hundred times more than they do. Yes, I agree. Um, so I'm going to answer that by talking about when I worked at the Children's Museum. This is very relevant to that. So I was the director of education for the Children's Museum before it was built. We would design the exhibits, think about the experience the families and the field trips would have in each of the exhibits. My job as a teacher, as an educator, was to take each exhibit and think about the ways children would, would experience that exhibit at different levels. And here's what I mean by that. A mom and dad come in with their three kids. One is 11, one is eight, one is four. Well, they can't leave their four-year-old in, a, in an exhibit geared to the younger ages and then send their other kids to other exhibits. You know, there's safety reasons that, that families need to stay together in a public space. And so they will, you know, they need to go into an exhibit knowing that all three of their kids at whatever level they're in can experience that exhibit at their developmental level. Okay. So my job, let's just use, you know, the shrimp boat example. We had a shrimp boat in the children's museum. My job was to make sure kids, you know, in the elementary school, so third, fourth, fifth grade, could learn a little bit about biology and the ecosystem around Charleston and the low country. While early childhood students could learn more about some of the different types of fish and, you know, the water samples and then early, early childhood, I'm talking pre-kindergarten, could play in the water. We had boats and they could race them down and move the rocks. And so in each exhibit, children of all ages could learn something within that space. And that's what teachers do. They well, make sure that happens. But plus the fact, I remember the museum well, because we took our kids there many times. It was tactile. It was interactive. And correct me if I'm wrong, but a younger child could get something out of the same exhibit, but in a different way. You know, maybe this one like touching the costumes and putting on a, I remember the, the costumes there. Um, and another child would get something else out of it. It wasn't like the older kid didn't want to be in there because it was for younger kids. That, I think, was the genius of it. Maybe you get the credit for that. Oh, well, I would love <laughs> to take the credit for that. Thank you. Um, I can't, though. You know, another big piece, and you're right. That's exactly right. And a big piece of how we were able to do that leads me to talking about, you know, teachers and their potential energy. And that is being able to attend conferences nationally. It is so great to network with other teachers and learn new strategies and find out maybe what some teachers in another state are doing that is successful because no one should have to reinvent the wheel. Um, in, in this whole teaching world we live in and being able to find out how other teachers differentiate and some of the cool strategies they use is really, really helpful. Now, of course, we're making an assumption, or at least I am, that every teacher that comes into the classroom is high energy and very excited and very interested, but that's not always the case. So how do we motivate teachers to step it up a notch, so to speak? That's a great question. If I had the answer, I, I would... <laughs> I would bank a million bucks. Um, I think it is really based on what the energy potential is for each teacher and what the teacher's goals are for the year. I think that, you know, if you're a high school algebra teacher, your energy level will be quite different from a middle school social studies teacher. You know, the excitement around math 
is different than the excitement around history. It doesn't, and I'm not talking about excitement as far as like high, low. I'm talking about the different feel when you're looking at a timeline in history versus figuring out an algebra equation. The reasons you're doing it, the motivation behind it, that's where the energy comes from. It's not necessarily the teacher being super excited, like, woohoo, we're going to do an algebra problem today, guys. Let's go. It's not that. It's more about, I'm really excited to see how we can get through this algebra problem. These are the reasons. Maybe these are some of the career choices you can make if you are a dynamo at algebra. And just getting the kids excited to learn. That's the energy. I would also think that there's a, a moment when a teacher can look out and you know, I call it the aha moment, when you know that a student gets it. And that's got to be very rewarding. And what does that feel like? I'm sure you've done that many times. Oh, the light bulb moment. Yes, it's very exciting. You know, I've been out of teaching for a while, but I can still remember clearly the day I was teaching fifth grade and I learned that one of my students was reading barely on a third grade level and he was getting into trouble. That's how I found out about this reading level. He was constantly pushing my buttons um, because in previous classrooms, he had been sent to the office. So he kind of got a hall pass. Well, I didn't get my work done because I wasn't in class. Well, for me, I I don't tend to send students to the office. So we had a lot of conversations and I told him how it made me feel when he did these things while I was trying to teach. And I got to the bottom of it and learned he really was struggling with reading. So he was trying to get out of the room because he was embarrassed. And so I worked with him after school and we read Curious George books in fifth grade. I remember them so well. Oh my. And you know, even when you're 10 years old, Curious George is fun. You're not going to read it in front of your classmates though. So he got through those books, learned how to read. And that was the aha moment for me when when he was able to, with confidence, read along with his peers. But what does that say about the relationship this student had with you? I mean, there was a lot of trust. Uh, you may have figured it out before, is it a he? Is that what Luke said? Mm-hmm. Yes. Before he said anything to you. But that's a pretty big you know, step in the positive direction to admit that I'm dealing with this. And, and you solved his problem. And he's probably far more advanced today than he might have been if a teacher had just, uh, you know, sent him on his way and not cared about it. I sure hope so. Um, Trust, exactly. Trust is everything. Relationship building is so important. And, you know, I've said it before, they don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. And this student knew I cared. And I presented the challenge from my perspective. I didn't say, hey, you're getting into trouble. Hey, you're disrupting the class. Hey, this is not okay. Your behavior is not okay. I said, this is how I feel when you X, Y, Z. When, you're, when your behavior affects my teaching, I'm disappointed. It makes me feel sad. I'm confused. He responded to that because we had trust, but also because I wasn't labeling him. I wasn't making him feel bad about himself. I was making him think more about his actions and how they affect someone he cares about. And all those actions were just defense mechanisms to try to avoid dealing with the problem. Exactly. There's always a root problem. It's amazing. I'm going to divert for a second and uh, ask you to tell me about The Learning Ring, which is the name of your organization. And by the way, if you have questions, comments, or uh, suggestions for guests for a show, please email Robin at robin at thelearningring.com. T-H-E-L-E-A-R-N-I-N-G. 
R-I-N-G.com. Robin at thelearningring.com. So how did the, the learning ring come about and what does that mean? So the learning ring is, I call it my legacy. It's what I'm going to leave behind. Um, my education career led me to this product that solves the problem of the disconnect between the after-school space and the classroom time, which could be an after-school program. It could be a summer program. Any time where kids are outside of the school day and there's opportunity to learn in a fun way, um, I want to be real clear. I'm not big on flashcards or memorizing things. That's not what this is. This is a kit. It's actually packed in the coolest packaging. It's a metal vintage lunchbox. Remember those? Of course. <laughs> and it has materials inside. And there is a ring that has 180 color-coded cards that represent 180 days of school. They're color-coded into the four content areas, which are math, science, social studies, and English language arts. And what that does is gives kids choice in the after-school space where they can pick a card, do the activity, and once they are all done with the 180 cards, they have covered every single state standard in those four content areas for their grade level. I mean, that's phenomenal. And, and I look at it from a position of these are kids that, you know, times have changed. The parents are not there as often to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing or helping them move along. You know, two families, everybody's working. The kids are sometimes latchkey kids to, to provide these tools for them. How do you instill in these kids the need to do this or the fact that this is fun? It's not a terrible exercise. It's not boring. You'll really enjoy this. And by the way, you'll benefit from it tremendously. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, intrinsic motivation is huge. I think the the fun of it, that it's in a lunchbox and it's yours, you keep it in the after-school space or at home. It's yours to pull out when you're ready to do it. And the student choice is really big. We can't emphasize that enough. When students get to pick what they're doing, it's huge. So the other cool thing about it, and this is going to sound really simple, but trust me, it is a motivator for um, kindergarten, first and second graders, is there is a space on each card, which is like a, a box, and they get one of those Remember those retractable colored pens? Oh, that had two or three different colors, though. <laughs> yeah, <sure>. Right. <laughs> so there's one of those in every kit. And the kids, as they go through the cards, get to tally each time they do a card. So it encourages not only, well, first of all, it teaches some math because tallying is one of the math standards. But it also encourages them to go through the cards. You know, you love to get through something. You love to finish something. Um, it's very motivating to be able to say, I did this. So they can check their box in each card they do as they go. They can do cards multiple times. It's just a fun way to record their work. So it doesn't feel like, you know, doing a worksheet just because. It's actually like you're accomplishing something. All right. So I have to know, the challenge, I think, for you and any teacher is to convince a kid that, by the way, when you're not here in the classroom... I've got some other learning for you to do. Now, how do you make them 
wide-eyed and excited to get to it, even though they're not in the classroom and technically, you know, they're not supposed to be learning outside of the classroom. Well, that that's the, you know, putting the broccoli in the pizza, right? We're, we're creating a fun learning experience. It's not so much like you're learning after school. It's, you know, you're doing something fun that's going to, you know, improve your learning in the classroom. Now, we don't sell it to kids that way. That's how we sell it to after school and, and school district providers. But I will also say the beauty of the Learning Ring system is it comes with a facilitator's guide, which in the after school space or at home can be really beneficial for parents and caregivers who may not be certified teachers. Uh-huh. And there are things in there, you know, I've had parents say to me, oh my gosh, if I had known subitizing was a kindergarten standard, I would have been doing it all along. I didn't even know what it was. Do you know what subitizing is? That was my next question. <laughs> so subitizing is being able to look at, let's let's take um, a die, which is six sides on a cube with dots, yeah. one through six dots, right? So a child will roll it and be able to say to you three instantly without touching each dot going one, two, three. They recognize um, objects in an array or some some form. They can recognize it immediately and be able to identify the number. Okay, so now let's let's make a segue here. We've gone from motivating kids to do these things in you know the after school space. Let's get back to the teachers and professional development and motivating them to take their classrooms to the next level. Talk about some of the programs that are available, what they do, and why they're so important. Okay. Um, I work with new teachers. They're pre-service teachers. They're juniors in college. And one of the videos I show to them in the first few weeks of school to really set the bar for what high energy is, is a video of a school outside of Atlanta called Ron Clark Academy. Ron Clark Academy is a middle school that is over the top with energy I'm talking teachers dancing on desks. Um, They have a slide in the middle of their school. Like uh, it it swirls around and and teachers and students slide down. I mean, it is over the top energy. And these kids are thriving. Their scores are high. Their attendance is high. Their engagement is high. The teachers are happy. I mean, it is checking all the boxes for what a successful school is. And I... I show that to my students only to say, let's make this the bar and anything you do that can get close to that target is a great thing. So Ron Clark Academy offers professional development. You can actually be, uh, attend the school and visit the classrooms. He has all different kinds of professional development, whether it's virtual or in person. So if a teacher lives in and around Atlanta, I would recommend that. And then in addition, there are out-of-school time, um, or I want to tell another one for teachers is Get Your Teach On, G-Y-T-O. Get Your Teach On, again, high energy. They have a cult-like following of teachers. They sell merchandise. I mean, it is crazy over the top with energy. So going there could also show you new ways to set a bar in your classroom that is way higher than you ever imagined. And then I would say for after-school program providers. Two great ones to look at are the National Summer Learning Association. It's usually in October every year, 
And then beyond school hours, which is in February of every year, those are two phenomenal conferences for teachers to attend, um, whether you're in the classroom or in an after-school space. So these new teachers that you're that you're working with, um, do they get? Um, I don't know, maybe the word isn't nervous, but like, oh my God, can I really bring that much energy to a classroom? I, I had no idea I was going to have to be a performer and, and, and all that. What kind of feedback do you get from these students? It's interesting. I think because they're so new in their career and they have, you know, they can remember first grade when they're a junior in college. First grade wasn't that long ago where for me, you know, I won't count the years right now, but it was a while back. And I think that energy inspires them. They're still so young. They think, oh, why didn't my first grade teacher do that? Or why didn't we do that in middle school? And they really start thinking about opportunities and ways they can embrace that kind of energy rather than the, you know, I can never do that mentality. So I think there's some optimism there. Well, speaking of optimism, what are you hearing from these new potential teachers why did they get into education what are they looking for what what motivated them to be in that classroom with you okay this answer is going to make a lot of teachers very proud and it is usually one teacher who inspired them in some way somewhere through kindergarten through 12th grade inspired them to get into the education profession so this is this is something that just one person they happen to have had an association with and they've held on to this all this time. They said, I want to be like that person. Yeah, and I think you have to have, you know, I told you how I played school growing up. You know, there is an intrinsic motivation. I don't think that, you know, if you feel compelled to be a doctor, that, you know, just because your fourth grade teacher was amazing, you're going to switch and be a teacher. Mm-hmm. I don't find it to be that extreme but if you have that kind of thought in your head and you're moving in that direction it just takes one teacher to push it over the top and you're like i'm all in well you all believe this but our show is rapidly coming to a close how fast was that today wow unbelievable you're listening to energy matters in the classroom with robin berlinski it's heard nationally wherever fine podcasts are sold or sold. Excuse me, found. That's an old line I use from television. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. Heard nationally wherever fine podcasts are found, and it's all over the place. And you can also listen to us if you live in Charleston, South Carolina, which is our home base, Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock on 1250 WTMA. We have great shows coming up. We've got some guests in the studio We're looking forward to much, much more with Energy Matters in the Classroom with Robin Berlinski. Any closing comments before we say goodbye? Thank you. The answer is, okay, (laughs) excellent comments. All right, folks, we'll see you next time. Take care.